the god of hellfire. Ah, now at last, for some real music. You are listening to Michael's record collection, of course. Don't be an idiot. Listen now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, the podcast where we talk about great music with the people who make it and the people who love it. This is episode number 82, and I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with the legendary Arthur Brown. Yes, you know him from the crazy world of Arthur Brown, the god of hellfire himself. Uh, He's got a new album coming out just in time for Halloween. It's called Monster's Ball. It drops October 21st on Cleopatra Records, and very excited to bring you that conversation. Before we get to that, however, I want to remind you about michaelsrecordcollection.com. It's my website where you can find links to all my social media. You can find a link to my Patreon where you can go and learn what kind of levels and and what the benefits are for those levels in supporting this independent podcast and independent writing that I do. And also there's a link there to the Michaels Record Collection newsletter, Sign up for free. Get it in your email box every week. A little bit different slant than the podcast or the video YouTube channel. If you want to follow me on social, I'd love to have you aboard. It's at Mike's Records on Twitter and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Feel free to drop me a line at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. Ask a question, I'll answer it on the next show. Tell me how I'm doing, give me some feedback, or just say hello and let me know you're out there. All right, with all that housekeeping out of the way, very happy to bring you my conversation with the legend, Arthur Brown. Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I am very excited to have with me today the god of hellfire himself, the legendary Arthur Brown. Arthur, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's it's a real pleasure to be uh, able to speak uh with you and uh yeah so you have a new album out uh, or coming out for a lot of people will do a lot of artists will do ha- uh christmas uh releases you you've got a halloween release coming out called monsters ball it comes out october 21st on cleopatra records and uh want to talk to you quite a bit about that uh record today yeah uh, i think maybe we'll just start a little bit at the beginning i know that you've been asked a lot of questions Many times throughout your career, and you're probably tired of telling some of the stories, but I want to start with, you know, you were born in the 40s and you you really kind of predate rock and roll. So I was was kind of curious as to what your early musical influences were, where they come from and and what informed your theatrical approach to music. Ah, well, I think the rhythmic approach. uh... Because there was no TV, and of course we had radio, but um, popular music was, uh, you know, of, of any interesting kind for for me anyway, uh, was sort of um, rare. <laughs> and um, so there were all kinds of other rhythms about for me initially. Uh, there was the the rhythms. I, I was in uh, Whitby in Yorkshire, where I was born, uh, 
mm-hmm. and of course the the sea is one of the main the, the rhythms of the sea is one of the main backgrounds there and the the howling gales and then uh, buzzing bees in the heather so there's a lot of natural sounds at that time and um, of course when I was very little there was also uh, the sound the the mechanical rhythms of uh, you know bomber planes coming over and so that was one kind of uh, music as well as the the noise of the animals and then there was uh, the rhythm of the trains and then there was the rhythm of music as it came out of the radio my parents also had a huge uh, phonogram uh, you know with the the curled horn mm-hmm. and a, a needle uh, sort of six times maybe ten times thicker than uh, a, a sewing and a uh, yeah sewing needle or a thread needle so it was a heavy heavy thing and and shellac and uh, vinyl um, and from what my parents played on that, uh, I remember they had a thing, I think it was called Morning by, there was Morning and Pierre Gint by Grieg, I think it was, and uh, a an opera piece by Dame Clara Boot, or Butt, um, Oh, for the wings, for the wings of the dove, far away. And with um, and then some um, uh, traditional New Orleans jazz, mm-hmm. and that was what I heard on the road. My father was a self-taught pianist who did. He loved Art Tatum, the jazz player, uh, the early jazz player, who was quite uh, astonishing. And But my father, whilst loving that, himself played more music by somebody called Charlie Coons, who was the German um, version of, of Art Tatum, but more Europeanized and... Uh, so that's what my father played, and played also sort of romantic ballads. Mm-hmm. And so that, and and of course, uh, a bit later than that, it was Sinatra and Ellington, and um, that that was when I was young. That was like you say before rock and roll and Presley and all of those people. Yeah. Now, you um, did you have any inklings of a musical career before you went off to college? I know that you didn't originally go to college for music. Uh, it's just kind of something that you moved into. It was something I moved into. Um, I had uh, I went first to London University, where I was going to study law, um, but discovered in 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 fact. Uh, traditional jazz and modern jazz, the movie Jazz on a Summer's Day, 
came out and there was the Osterley Jazz Festivals and traditional jazz uh, by the English bands, uh, you know, Ken Collier, Chris Barber, and and all the other ones that were amazing. Um, Akabilk uh, was another of the ones. So uh, I I was sort of familiar with that. I couldn't actually play, but the the experience in London of being in a flat, uh, you know, as students, you shared good accommodation and things mm-hmm. with somebody who who played guitar i've never seen someone who actually played guitar um and sang sort of country music uh on top of old smoky all covered in well, you know and um i i thought well I, i'll try that so i bought a banjo not realizing it didn't sound like a guitar really um and lens went on to a guitar and then somebody uh i went to reading university and somebody in the holiday whose flat i was staying with uh in uh, left a howling wolf album it was i think it was newly issued then that was 62 i think and uh, that was uh, an eye-opener of, oh, my goodness. And, of course, the, by then there was Alexis Corner, and uh, he, he brought out a series called uh, Kings of the Blues, which had all the early blues people, uh, country blues artists, and, um, you know, Mississippi John, and all sorts of the, the early... Uh, guys that, that that eventually the English bands copied and then grew into their own style from that. Um, so I was listening to that and and I I happened to hear the, the there was a rag, you know, where they put on things for the um, to raise money for the students' union and. Um, one of the things was this trad band playing on the back of a um, a flat flat truck, you know. And so I thought, well, that sounds wonderful. I'll um, I'll check out the the jazz club. And three months later, the I, I was in the bar of the students' union, and and somebody and his friend stood next to me and said. Uh, oh, such a pity about the um, the uh, bass player of the trad band being sent down. You know, he was being thrown out, and so I thought, oh, a bass player, eh? Well, I could do that, I'm sure. And um, so uh, I rushed out and bought a bass, uh, you know, a string bass, mm-hmm. and. Um, went down to their uh, rehearsal evening. And um, they said, uh, well, but what tunes do you know? I said, well, I've heard quite a few. Uh, you'll have to show me where to put my fingers. <laughs> 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 and so they introduced me to this guy who played in, he was a year ahead of me, and he 
he played the bass in the uh, modern jazz quartet they had. And so he said, well, look, if, if you're going to walk straight into playing things, I'll, I'll teach you some simple, th- uh, you know, um, riffs and stuff that you can play behind these tunes. And I will also show you how to wrap your fingers in, you know, these uh, sort of uh, smooth surface bandage adhesives so that when you're whacking the the fingers of the bass, you, you don't uh, tear your fingers to shreds. So I arrived and I, I played and um, it went okay. And then within uh, six weeks, they said, why don't you have a sing? And I, I, I had, uh, all I'd done was by this time sung with Elvis Presley's songs and uh, Little Richard songs on, you know, when they were on the radio. Mm-hmm. But I managed to sing, and they they liked it. And then I thought, well, I can sing, uh, okay, but I don't really have a voice. I'll take classical singing lessons, which I did. Then I was playing uh, double bass, and I had my own modern jazz quartet, and we were playing Charlie Mingus and all of those people. Mm-hmm. And it was a really lovely quartet with a trumpet player, and a quintet uh, with the trumpet player. And uh, that led to one day I went down to the Olympia, and it was packed with uh, fans of the Akabilt band. And so I, I went up to him in the interval and I said, look, I sing with this local university band and uh, I'd love to sing a song with you. And so I sang bass and street blues and that was my first uh, really, you know, big public performance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, thing. And uh, it kind of led on from there, really. Yeah. Arthur, what did you think when Elvis and and later the Beatles came along? What were your impressions early on uh, of them? Oh, I mean, Elvis was my man. <laughs> Elvis <laughs> and and little Richard. I mean, the the uh, the uh, unbelievable vocals. You know, I'd never heard really anybody putting that kind. Of, you know, there was Louis Armstrong. But as as for somebody singing with that edge in the gospel style, that was my first uh, hearing of that, and that was wow. And uh, so I, you know, I sang his songs. I couldn't sing like him at that point, mm-hmm. and so 
you know, with the all that. Uh, I couldn't do it. But um, I gradually tried. And so I, I was just amazed at the, the energy, the joy. And, and with Elvis, of course, uh, the, the, the kind of passion in his voice was very lyrical. And, and I got to say that um, he sang quite a few things almost with a, a female approach. Uh, when he wasn't doing the, you know, the rock hard stuff, mm-hmm. and 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 it was he had such a breadth of um, of what he uh, attempted in those days, and uh, so it, it. But but the yeah, the excitement being a teenager by then. I mean, I I got thrown thrown out of a cinema for bopping in the aisles of the movie uh, Jailhouse Rock. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Little Little Richard, is, is that where you kind of developed your, I mean, you become known for some of your, your sort of screaming and some of the vocalizations that you, that you do is, is that, is that, was that largely influenced by Little Richard then? It, it, that led into uh, James Brown. Mm. And James Brown was one of the ones that I felt, you know, he his uh, passion and and uh, again it was a gospel style, and he could scream. He didn't really scream and sing whole verses in it, but he 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 could do all that, and um, so it it was that, and then. The, the idea that as I was taking classical lessons and learning scales, I could learn something else as well as I went to it. So I, I started to learn and go and drive people in the, uh, the students' union. A uh, bit insane. Trying to learn how to scream like that until I, I could do it. And... Um, yeah, and and then it became kind of natural, and I could do it kind of easily without feeling that I was uh, damaging my throat or anything. <laughs> uh, That's important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you know quite a few of the rock singers ended up going to voice lessons midway through their career mm-hmm. because they they were experiencing difficulty with uh, the throat you know yeah um and uh, i needed to know well what is it that i need to do in order to preserve the voice you know and even if you're doing that guttural thing you have to learn to relax when you're doing it Otherwise, it's it's all tense and you will tear your throat. Oh, that's not good. Devil's wife, the old man, which she's riding me. Then she makes a devil's sign, waves her magic wand. He throws open the fiery gates and tells her to ride on. Saw the burning brimstone, saw the fiery cave. Every soul that burns there is banned in devil's slave. Again, these 
This is a difficult question that I like to ask people. Um, do you have a favorite record of all time? Uh, uh, oh, it, it changes. I mean, if I said one today, I can say one. Uh, but it would change just about every every day at least. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the impression that made was just uh yeah that that was one of my favorite records all, all the always that and then um presley's one of the things that i really loved that he did was a how be strong as mountain oh we can't the tree and that anyway you want me, that's how I will be. And um, that was not done with his, his kind of affected voice. It was just a, a direct one. And so I loved that. That was one of my favorites. Uh, I, I have to say Nina Simone's I Put a Spell on You uh, was just phenomenal. and. Uh, there were all kind of things like on the radio there was a, a series um and there was the lead character was this girl called Polly Oliver and there was a song they did Sweet Polly Oliver lay dream in bed a fancy idea came into her head, and so on. And uh, th that was one of my favorites. And then there was in the folk uh, realm was, um, I sow the seeds of love, and I sow them in the spring. In April, May, and in June, likewise, the birds do sweetly sing. The birds do sweetly sing. And then it goes through the flowers and the different seasons. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's all, you know, imagery for uh, different kinds of love and all that. Mm -hmm. So let's move ahead to 1968. You uh, you guys had a huge hit, uh, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, self-titled album. The hit was called Fire. It was a big hit, number one in the UK and Canada, number two in the United States. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. Saved and earned 
I'm sure you've been asked this many times, but how did the spoken uh, word intro to fire come about? <laughs> well, um, I wrote a poem when I was about ooh, 14, 15, and it was what we became on the record, the introduction to fire. Uh, the and it was a. Uh, I was lying in the grass by a river, and as I lay, the grass turned to sand, and the river turned to sea. And suddenly, the sea burst into flames, and the sand was burning. And I was, and it falls in the flames, and um, and then out of that comes the. Uh, but that was a, a poem, and I had, you know, there, there were lots of things. Uh, there was uh, the fact that they were uh, bombing. Uh, initially, we lived in London. They were bombing the East End. We lived in the East End, and uh, our house was blown to bits, and the streets were on fire. So mm. flames were. Also, uh, they blew up. So we moved back to Whitby, and they blew the, our house up there. My, in fact, my grandmother's hotel it was. Wow. And um, so uh, we were really lucky. Uh, my mother, one of them, my mother just took us in the pram out and she got about 400 yards down the road and uh, heard the explosion and, and the house was gone. Not a trace left of it. You know, just dust, direct hit. And... Um, so the flames became something important. And also in those days, uh, as I said, there wasn't a TV or anything, and you you didn't want to uh, have too much going on in terms of uh, perhaps radio, uh, et cetera. And, and so you, you, you'd, you'd have a lot of silence. And the 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 flames of the fire were what you watched. <laughs> you heard the grandfather clock going. And then there was the flames of the fire with the gases coming off and making their noises, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, spent a lot of time watching that and watching how in the center of the fire, as opposed to on the the outer side where it all flickered and uh, different colors came out of the ga different gases of the coal, the center of the fire was moved at a much slower rhythm and was sort of white and, and gold. And in the real center of it was quite still. And because you watched it such a lot of times, it, it had a hypnotic effect, at least on me. And uh, you, you got into a different state of mind altogether. And it was very, uh, yeah, very peaceful. And so for, for me, fire became a, a thing that uh, was allied to changes of the state of mind. Uh, and and then uh, that allowed looking at things, and so you you maybe look at your 
behaviors and things. So that that was, yeah, that that was going on. And so when it came to doing the first album, um, you you kind of do uh, what's on your mind, really, as mm-hmm. the first album. And so um, I decided, well, I'd like to do something about fire. And so I, and uh, maybe because of the war and all of that, I don't know. I think so. Uh, I, I decided I'd start it with a somebody in uh, a confused state, or a, you know, a, a, a mixed-up, challenged state, and and uh, in which the world became a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And um, so then he wants a way out, and the way is to bathe in fire. And so then. I, I, I started. We started as a band, the Crazy World, to play those tracks, and uh, in the, that, that was before the UFO Club and the Underground. Uh, so people found the lyrics very strange, and so decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to make these into characters, uh, and the characters. We'll dress up on stage in as the character, and I'll make these gods come in, and they are the, uh, if you were like the embodiment of the states of mind or the states of consciousness of of um, of that person, and so because it was to do with fire, then one of the aspects of fire is the what some people would say is a very destructive thing, mm-hmm. but it's also purification because, uh, you know, all, all the daily uh, crap that's in you gets burnt away. Oh, goodness, what's that? <laughs> Hold on. For whom the bell tolls. <laughs> it tolls for um, thee, Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the character became the god of hellfire, the the one who uh, kind of purifies, and uh, that that makes hell into a kind of purgatory, or at least the god of hellfire's function is not, you know, not sort of uh, what some people thought it was totally devilish, but it's not. It's something else, mm-hmm. and. Um, and then there was another character that came. The song after that on the album was a song called uh, Come and Buy. When you see a fire burning inside your mind's eye, breathe the meaning of the flames before you let them die. Let them, let them burn you through until you know that you can fly. And um, so that's a... a uh, the opposite. It's the twin brother of the god of hellfire, mm-hmm. and of course, then I needed to know, people to know that it was the god of hellfire. So the line came about through that: "I am the god of hellfire," and uh, that necessitated, as a god, oh yes, well then, he's got to have the the horns of the pagan gods, which uh, Christianity turned into. 
you know, the horns of the devil, but actually in the pagan things, it was just, you know, they, they worshipped uh, animal deities and uh, they were, you know, forces of nature. And so this was uh, the origin of the, the horns on the helmet and the flames coming out of the top were, what better way to suggest fire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a it was a brilliant plan to go in with, I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you, and then it goes right into the song, the first word, fire, and you're in the song. And uh, it's interesting because you guys didn't, you, you chose to go with, you know, a keyboard, heavy and rhythmic approach, a uh, little bit of psychedelic, a little bit of, of pop, but not using guitars like a lot of the bands of your era. No, not at all. Um, I, I must say that uh, we, we had a brilliant keyboard player uh, who also, uh, he, he was trained as a classical composer. Uh, he could conduct orchestras. He, he was quite young, but he, he was extremely talented and very funny. And so he also had learned bass pedals uh, so he could do, you know, uh, modern jazz bass pedals, rock bass pedals. Mm -hmm. And, but of course, the Hammond that we had at that time was a very small Hammond. So your volume was not very much in those days. It was before the onset of the big speakers, you know. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your uh, amplification was basically for the, the the voice and a bit for some you know for the rest uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but but um the the real factor in it was that if you were not a well-known band you would then uh if you were trying to make money with music as well as you know and get out to audiences then you you had to have a a lineup that let you afford that, and if you were particularly if you were making experimental style music, which we were before it was popular, and um, so partly the the the, the unit was uh, that small because it was the way we could afford to continue. Mm. Okay. And so we had drums, drums, keyboard, and voice. Okay. We didn't even have a bass player. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you and have it, to? Did it, you have to mic the Hammond? We tried that, and uh, it it was you know the the equipment was kind of rudimentary in those days, and you relied a lot on the room acoustics. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if if the it depended on the size of your the PA, you know, if if in in the very early days we didn't have a very big PA, and so if you mic'd up the Hammond as well as it having its you know its own voice box, as it were, uh, you'd drown out the voice. So you you just did everything, and then of course. <laughs> you had to control the excitement of the drummer uh, to a, to a level where you could both be heard on top of him, and um, all of that be became the the reason why uh, 
people invented you know the equipment that could t- carry a, la- a larger sound and um people were, invented pas uh some of them were sort of um, hi-fi pas i remember charlie watkins making a hi-fi pa which uh, of which the sound was brilliant but he ended up dumbing it down making it not so good because it was so delicate you couldn't take it around to gigs <laughs> <laughs> you know so uh there were, there were lots of things like that and and you know the the later experiments the first we used the first bass speakers where the the bass speaker was sent round in a thing rather like you know a, a seashell that has the round the the sort of uh what do you call it spiral okay um, like a nautilus kind of thing yeah and so they they were able to send the sound backwards and it bounced off and came forwards and that gave you a much bigger deep sound mm. uh but it took uh some amount of concerts before we learned how to control it and uh that's that happened uh, with uh Oh, a little later. That was with my second band, uh, Kingdom Come. Okay. But the, yeah, all these things were invented, and the wah, the wah wah, and, and the sample. We had the first sampler or noisemaker, which really, which carried samples, six samples, and um, then we. Uh, it all went like that, and our, you know, and then you got all Grand Funk Railroad coming with their, uh, you know, twenty columns high <laughs> PA stack that was <laughs> just absolutely painful. <laughs> oh my God! I remember. I think they came to Hyde Park and put it, and it was just like, hi. God, I've got. I think I need to run fifty yards at least, <laughs> <laughs> and get get to the back of the queue and and listen from the back of the audience. With my God, and other people were sort of <laughs> sitting at the front, and they they were instantly hypnotised into this <laughs> <laughs> heaving mass of people because they they could not not respond with their bodies to this <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah it, it, stunned. And, and, uh, <laughs> it, it was a, a, an astounding period you know where all that came and and then, and you know hendrix came along and made it into something uh just uh from another world and it, it uh although i, I remember seen Clapton with John Mayall and they, they did a number called Witch Doctor and Clapton's solo was feedback one note and he went on for about two and a half minutes on this one note <laughs> and it was the first time anybody heard anything like that and so it was like oh wow and then of course you know People took it in different directions. So, sure. it, it, and 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 then being down in UFO, you just got everybody experimenting from Pink Floyd, uh, 
um, Keith Emerson was down there with the Nice, which was a very experimental band, uh, early early soft machine. Uh, Mark Bowen, the Bopping Imp, and uh, you know doing his uh, duo thing with, with not electric uh, and not uh, not pop music as he later went into, and uh, you know poets. Uh, experimental dancers. Uh, it was all there and influenced everybody uh, in there who came and played. So it, it was at once a, a challenge because the audience were accustomed to adventurous music and they wanted it. Yeah. So if you went in there and you didn't give it, mm. <laughs> <laughs> tough, tough luck. They'll turn on you. <laughs> yeah <laughs> sounds like an amazing time it, but it's it, it's incredible to me that you wrote this introduction to this character i am the god of hellfire and i bring you fire and more than 50 years later you are still referred to i did it at the stop start of this show as the god of hellfire what must a 26 year old arthur brown have thought of that <laughs> uh, well the the fact that that was used on the radio and included by you know the record company and made as part of the single uh, with Pete Townsend at uh, and Kit Lambert at the helm of that was at the same time you know yeah challenging it was a, a, a confirming that we were doing something right with our experiments mm -hmm. and the fact that it, they made managed to make it a big hit uh meant that wow we, we seem to be appealing to a uh you know a mass audience in in a way that we never thought we would and the idea that we would actually have a career longer than about three years that that came later <laughs> you know <laughs> Uh, as as people started to, uh, you know, later people started to take things from those experimental things and bands all over the world, for instance, heard fire and uh, wanted to, they found it exciting mm -hmm. and musically, musically quite challenging. And, and, and wow, we can do all these chords, right? you know let's let's have a crack at that and and um just lots and lots of people doing it the uh yeah the fact that uh people would con continue doing it uh, for as you say 50 60 years that i it it never would have entered our mind yeah there were there were points at which we felt disappointed we felt we hadn't communicated what we were uh, hoping to but the, the 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 fact that you know say in 1995 or nine, a bit later now I, I i went into um a gig at chiswick put on a gig with the band 
And um, this uh, lady who was cleaning the place came after the gig and said, uh, oh, there's someone in the room next to this one who wants to meet you. And I said, oh. She said, yeah, it's, it's, uh, he's called Bruce, Bruce Dickinson. And I said, oh, oh, really? Who, who's he? She said, you don't even know him. I said, no. She said, uh, he sings with Iron Maiden. And so I thought, oh, Iron Maiden. Ooh. Wow. So I, I, I went in and, uh, began, well, Bruce just said, uh, you know, I I loved your music. I, I used to come down and watch your band playing, and uh, I, I, it's had a great influence on my style and what what I do. You know, mm -hmm. and and then that that came from different quarters began to come in at different times in my my history. Uh, you know, uh, George Clinton said he'd got his style from. The seeing me, uh, you know, uh, set my head on fire and say, I'm the god of hell fire. And so, I uh, the all these people that I greatly respected, um, I thought, oh, well, we must have done something right, and it, and it seems to be enduring. There must be something about the energy of the music which really communicates, mm -hmm. and so. Now I look at it, and I, I'm still. But music's very mysterious, I find. Yes, it is for sure. It's interesting. That I'm glad you brought up Bruce Dickinson because you, one of my favorite bands, is Iron Maiden, and and you actually worked with Bruce on his uh, Chemical Wedding solo album. You did some narration, some uh, reading of some. I believe it was William Blake poems. She comes forth on the churches in delight. Here is her cup, filled with its poisons. In these horrid veils, and here her scarlet veil woven in pestilence and war. Here is Jerusalem bound in chains in the dens of Babylon. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we both share a love of William Blake and... Uh, and uh, the, of course, William Blake was very much into uh, illustrations. All of his poems were illustrated, and he designed his own machine to to be able to do it simultaneously. 
So uh, we we had both a love of visuals as well as the music, and um, and so yeah, and and I I got very ill once, and uh, Bruce was really really very helpful, and in fact restarted my career when it I I'd sort of had a a brain hemorrhage thing, and. Uh, so everything came to a stop, mm-hmm. and um, he signed me on to Sanctuary Records, which was his uh, Iron Maiden's sort of record company that be- became very, very successful indeed. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, he was very instrumental in uh, helping me get out of the uh, bad period, indeed. That's good. And um, yeah. Yeah. Bruce seems like a good guy and I'm glad he was able to help you out. That album, Chemical Weddings, a really terrific solo album came out in 98. One other album I wanted to talk to you about, you you did lead vocals on one song for the 1976 Alan Parsons Project debut album, <laughs> Tales of Mystery yeah. and Imagination. You sang the Telltale Heart all about, you know, Edgar Allan Poe seems to be someone who would be right up your alley as well. How did you get involved with Alan Parsons and Eric Wolfson for that? I believe, let me see. Well, of course, I'd done the Tommy thing by then. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was back in the the big studios and things. And I believe that it was, uh, I bumped into Eric Wolfson, um, who was Alan Parsons' musical co-writer mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, Eric was largely lyrics that he wrote but he did also do some of the music and uh, uh, riffs and stuff and so they were aware of my you know uh, styles and the fact that I was a theatrical and had the, the, the band the crazy world was a a kind of mixture, fifty-fifty uh, humor and laughter, and then scary stuff. You know, mm-hmm. some of which was I used to like to make fun of it, tongue in cheek, but some of it was uh, quite serious. And so uh, they thought, "Wow, Edgar Allan Poe, drama, dramatic delivery. Let's have Arthur Brown do it." <laughs> and so, of course, Alan Parsons was already a, 
a big studio name at that point because of all the the rest of the stuff he'd been involved with, with the Pink mm-hmm. Floyd and everything. So it was, uh, you know, wow. I'm, I really enjoyed the opportunity there. And we did it very quickly, actually. I think it was the second take, and that was it. And uh, they called me back uh, four weeks later at nine o'clock in the morning to deliver a full-throated scream lasting uh, because I, they, they, I don't know what happened to the previous one. I think they something mechanical happened to it, so I, I did another one, and then that that was it. That was uh, yeah, and and of course it was a, a kind of daring thing, and and as as an album combining almost classical strings and uh, rock music was not uh, you know it wasn't a largely done thing yeah very I mean, unique yeah and and uh, extremely well uh, presented and then of course it went on the Alan Parsons project went on and on uh, doing ever greater things I think you yeah know, as far as and and getting more and more popular and more concert uh, yeah and that that's uh, in in different periods of my career that's been uh, a favorite one to do <laughs> <laughs> the scream I'm glad you brought that up because the scream itself is it just you're like you said it goes on for a long time it's it's very unique in that it's it just kind of goes all over the place and, and I just was curious as to was that something that you came up with on your own when you initially did the vocal or did they ask you to incorporate one of those um I did uh, one but I uh, it I think they asked me to lengthen it okay and so that that was it all right yeah that was uh that was amazing but i i've always loved that album i've always loved the alan parsons project and uh it was nice to nice to be able to ask you about that why don't we turn our attention toward the present then and you um you recently turned 80 what is it about music that keeps you going arthur <laughs> well i you know i love it i love music I uh, love uh, performing, and about six years ago, uh, I used to eat at his restaurant in Lewis, in uh, Sussex, and uh, the person who ran it uh, was called uh, Claire Waller, and we uh, became involved with each other and uh we're still yeah very much uh, love partners and um but she was uh, a a great energy uh both for uh the business side and for the the um creativity 
And so uh, she became the creative director of the current incarnation uh, of the performing that I do. And it's multimedia. The visual side is uh, absolutely stunning. And she had the the vision of that and uh, yeah directed that so she's the, the overall uh director of the the way everything is performed and of the the business so it's, it's been a very fortunate and very uh enriching opportunity that that uh and i feel very you know, blessed by it, and and so we we decided we'd like to do, you know, this uh, multimedia performance, and based it, uh, we we created a, a kind of story for out of my career, and so it it has, it's called the the human perspective, and it's. Uh, We've we've been headlining with it um, in different festivals and things, and it's it goes down uh, really well. Mm-hmm. And that is, enables us to to take different pieces of music uh, because the story is elastic, and we can you know we can develop it and use the. Uh, kind of uh, projections and all of those things in a really theatrical way and incorporate things from all the upcoming albums you know so uh, we've we've got stuff from my back catalog which is in uh, cherry red the crazy world and uh, mm-hmm. Kingdom Come are all cherry red uh, releases, and then I got a deal with a, a German company called Prophecy, who've been true to their word. They, the reason we went with them, uh, Claire, of course, negotiated it all. But the reason we went with them was because they they said that they wanted the the artists have input on all aspects of the the production and so they they feature uh, very beautiful booklets in with you know all the different uh, recorded materials and other things that they put in the box set mm-hmm. and uh, they've been very much true to their words so Claire was able to steer all of it so that it had a, a kind of integrity uh, with the music and the, the visuals and the, the drama and everything. And, uh, yeah, so that was that one. And and, uh, and now uh, the monster, monster Ball is coming out, and that... Is again sort of dramatic, and uh, has it, it, it's playful and scary, and uh, it, it features some songs that um, you you wouldn't think would fit that uh, until you really examine the lyrics again. 
from a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And so one uh, is uh, by, by uh, Pink Floyd, very early Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. Lucifer Sam. doing an interpretation of that and of course the, the production on that album is really wonderful and uh, it's in various hands and the music values are different and uh, yeah they employ a lot of modern modern techniques yeah that's what the song loose for sam is what kind of drew me in toward this this collection of songs because I'm a, I'm a Pink Floyd fan. I, I enjoy uh, all of that and, and, and probably not as much into the, the psychedelic early stuff, but you were, you were right there when Sid Barrett uh, was fronting Pink Floyd back in the day. Yes, yes. Yeah. He, uh, quite a few evenings down in uh, UFO. We, we would, uh, yeah, we'd be on, at different times of the evening, but he always watched something of everybody, and and you kind of chat, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with all all people from different bands, and mm -hmm. pick up ideas and perspectives, and then, so yeah, that that um, it is. It's it's in the way that say I put a spell on you, you can interpret as a love song, a horror song. A, uh, a power song, uh, uh, a begging song, you know, it has all these kind of different uh, aspects to it. And in fact, the the one we're discussing now, we could, we, you can do it from different, different angles as to what the story really is. And mm -hmm. what is he saying about the cat? Uh, you, and so that, that became... I think that was why it was in, included. You, it's not one of those songs that you hear and think, oh, well, there's somebody doing a version that sounds a little similar to the original, and uh, mm -hmm. I prefer the original. Um, it, it's uh, re-looking at it in, in a different way. Yeah. The, there's a lot of... Uh unbelievable guests on this album including uh on lucifer sam ian pace and steve hillage are on it got rabs rat scabies from the damned we've got alan davy was on this the late uh, roy albrighton's on this uh Shuggy otis was this one of those things that everybody kind of did their thing in their own studio and it, it got pieced together 
I think mainly so, yes. Uh, although I do remember uh, there is a version of Fire on there, and I do remember sitting with Brian Auger and Carmen Apis when they were when that was recorded. I am the god of hell, fire, and I bring you fire. But yes, you, apart from that, it's uh, the say uh, the the tracks, for instance, that Alan Davy produced. He takes the the vocal and then builds, tears it apart, builds around it, and uses it as a, a composing um, tool, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also, and we're, we're in in contact, you know. So I'm also able to uh, take a, a, a direction he may have suggested, or uh, suggest an, uh, an an instrumental bit that might uh, change the, the direction a bit. So it, it was a. Uh, very much a complimentary thing but yes the the it wasn't like we all got in together in a it would have taken uh, probably uh 15 separate bands <laughs> to make <laughs> <laughs> so so this is a very uh, creative way of doing it and i you know brian pereira the head of um the, the record company uh, cleopatra records is uh, definitely someone who likes to work that way, and he he's very astute in um, choosing who, and and he will take that that album moved through psychobilly uh, into you know Hawkwind style space rock mm-hmm. uh, electronic music. Uh, it, it moved several camps, uh, heavy. Heavy metal, the uh, the uh, decrypts influence, um, and so it it becomes a very interesting record, I think, and uh, and it it allowed the scope that you could get humour and also you know feelings of uh, terror in there. Yeah, if you want. Yeah, it's and with this coming out right before Halloween, it's a very 
you look at the track list and it's it seems like you know it's perfect perfect timing you've got bucket of blood zombie yelp uh, whistling past the graveyard curse of the hearse <laughs> Uh, Mad Witch, <laughs> Vampire. I mean, these are all must. But then there's one. Uh, it's a it's a cream cover of "I Feel Free." I wondered what <laughs> what what was the what was the inclusion of that. have to confess <laughs> I, I could see that uh, it was a, a song that, that uh, they asked me to to do a version of mm -hmm. and uh, so I did my my version of it and um, it, it's <laughs> it's their inscrutable inclusion into the album and um, so I think it's it's a wonderful stretching of the imagination. <laughs> well, it's one of my favorite uh, songs on the album, actually. I think it's great. I think it's a really nice cover. Obviously, these weren't all recorded and, and written all or, or, or put together all at the same time because Roy Albrighton from Nectar hasn't been with us for a while. How How old are some of these bits? Well, I think one of them is from a... Uh, a kind of B B horror movie, and it was on the the backing track, and uh, so that that's probably dates back probably to let me see, well not all that bad, five twenty fifteen or something like that. Mm -hmm. But but most uh, most of it is is now current of the. Um, yeah, during the last three years, really, because lockdown was part of the the background of doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought so. Um, and that's where a lot of the people come in where they're working from home, because that's what a lot of the work, I mean, that's how a lot of the work is done anyway nowadays, but during the lockout, especially, that's how a lot of albums got made. And, um, you know, with, with this this many people on it to get this many people in the same place at the same time would have would have required uh, quite a bit of logistics. So the <laughs> the other uh, song I wanted to discuss was the I'm always a I'm always a sucker for a cover of Carnival Nine, which is a bonus track on the CD version of this. And you've got uh, the fantastic Dream Theater keyboardist Jordan Rudas on this. Show that never ends. I'm so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. 
Stay behind the glass, there's a real blade of grass. Be careful when your pets move along, move along. Honey, Sanders shows about to stop. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Rest assured, you get your money's worth. It's great in this show in What uh, what what sparked your imagination about that song? I know I know you're a big progressive rock uh, guy. Well, the the thing was that I went on uh, two years ago, I think it was um, the American tour uh, of uh, Yes Asia and uh, Carl Palmer's, you know, ELP. Uh, Legacy. That's mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah, and uh, we toured. I don't know. I didn't mean thirty, thirty-six concerts, or uh, maybe it was some more than that. And uh, I was singing with uh, Carl Palmer's because, of course, he he was uh, the when um, the crazy world sort of fell apart in America, Carl Palmer came in as the drummer. Uh, and so... Okay, I didn't that know was, that. <laughs> oh, yeah, he he did uh, on the video. It's him doing the video um, of Fire. And he, he wasn't on the, the actual album. That was our Grayson Seeker. Um, but uh, he was with the band for about two years and then went on to form uh, Atomic Rooster with Vincent Crane. So I had a, a lot of history with Carl and uh, he, he was a you know, young, really talented, very energetic and uh, very positive energy indeed. Um, so it was, it was, it was a, a no-brainer, really. And uh, so what, he uh, invited me to join him on the tour and sing some of the uh, ELP songs. Well, a couple of ELP songs. And uh, also on, on the program, uh, I did Fire with him. And so one of the songs that I did, Welcome back, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that was where I uh, really um, first made contact with this song. Of course, I, I you know, listened to uh, some of the ELP stuff because I, I loved Keith Anderson when he was with um, his previous band uh, that played down at UFO. And, um, and I knew Carl. And so I... I but th- this was the first time I'd ever sort of sung any of their songs mm-hmm. uh, in public. And so, yeah, so it, it 
it has a, uh, a sort of that that almost fairground clown feel about it of uh, on the edge between disaster and uh, and uh, damnation and total hysterical funny humor <laughs> yeah there's something a little sinister about a a carnival midway barker isn't there <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i i i think they really got the the spooky elements there and of course they their visual show was quite amazing as well yeah well this is a a, a tremendous collection it's 13 songs on the if you get the cd otherwise it's 12 it's available on digital, uh, digital CD and red marble vinyl, which looks amazing on in the in the photos, and uh, it's available at Cleopatra Records. Its pre-sale is uh, is already going on. Will you be able to get it on your website, thegodofhellfire.com? Yeah, we're we're dealing with the logistics of that, and uh, you know the the current day. Uh, costings of uh, postage and all of that stuff mm-hmm. to, to see which is the best way around to do it but yeah yeah we'll be selling it <laughs> and we'll we'll um you know when it when it comes out obviously as we do uh, our performances we'll we'll include uh, a song from this album we've got to yeah that's good it's been great find out a little bit about this record and a little bit about your past i'm glad to see that after i don't know how many times you've been burned by your burning helmet but you still have some hair which is good to see (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah well i not only burned the helmet but suits of clothes ceilings stages (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i i mean you must have been burned by that thing uh, d- dozens and dozens of times uh well yes and then of course by, by hard experience you you think well there must be another way to do this i know it's very <laughs> exciting and uh we don't want to lose any of that but uh crikey <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a tough way to make a living arthur <laughs> 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 yes uh, and uh i i don't i i there was yeah there was a, there was a, a once a, a guy called the great oman and and he was a conjurer in england and he used to um uh do things like having himself driven from say brighton um to a concert in london but he would travel on the top of a hearse uh on a board that had you know nails uh three inches long and just that the whole surface was the points of these nails so he would lie on them all the way to to the gig and then do this uh very strange he could do all of houdini's tricks and things and also a a fire act Mm. and so we we once did a a performance along with a lot of other uh, artists from the the 50s and 60s to raise money to put a statue of max miller the comedian 
um, in Brighton. And so he he was uh, commissioned to do his fire act. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I said, well, good. I'll, I'll watch this. And um, he came on, stood on the stage, suddenly looked around, walked over to a table where somebody had left a, a bottle of wine, walked up back to the mic and smashed it over his head. <laughs> and so afterwards, I, he came off and I said, um, I thought you were going to do a fire act. And he said, yes, um, it, I left it by mistake at home. Um, and and he said, I, I think it's something to do with at a certain age, you, you can find that what you used to do is now terrifying. And so, you know, the mind brings in ways of forgetting it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I, 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 I'm glad that I'm still at 80. Uh, I'm still able to go on because we found a way that, that was uh, not sort of necessarily very dangerous to me personally. Mm-hmm. Or to the clubs. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to burn up your workplace. That's bad. No. <laughs> uh, uh, Arthur Brown, this has been a treat to talk to you. I know you've you've been very influential on many of the artists that I listen to: Alice Cooper, Peter Gabriel. Uh, we already talked about Iron Maiden. I mean, uh, and on and on and on. It's uh, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you about your career at about Monsters Ball that comes out October twenty first on Cleopatra Records, and uh, you can check out more uh, on thegodofhellfire dot com. That is Arthur's website. Arthur, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, and uh, yes. I hope you keep listening to these spooky sounds. <laughs> <laughs>